The following content contains adult subject matter, including graphic violence, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences, therefore, discretion is advised. Would you be brave enough to speak out about an oppressive regime? And what if that regime placed you in a psychiatric hospital for years to make sure you kept your mouth shut? Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. Today, we're telling the story of Vladimir Bukovsky, the man who exposed the widespread practice of dissidents like him being sent to psychiatric hospitals in the Soviet Union of the 60s and 70s. This is a tale of courage and endurance in the face of a sinister campaign to keep the world from learning the truth. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On March 9th, 1953, 11-year-old Vladimir Bukovsky was trying to find a good vantage point. He and his group of friends had shimmied up drain pipes and jumped from roof to roof until they had finally found themselves on the top of a tall, grand hotel. Vladimir's home city of Moscow was more crowded than he'd ever seen it, especially Red Square, there were thousands of people gathered there to pay their last respects to Joseph Stalin, their great Soviet leader. Vladimir's parents and teachers had told him that Stalin had died, but he struggled to really believe it. All his life, he'd been told that Stalin was all-powerful, all-seeing, a god, even. And gods couldn't die. Vladimir needed to see Stalin for himself. Hundreds of feet below him, the crowd began to part to make way for a horse-drawn carriage draped in red fabric. In the carriage was a red casket with a top made of glass. Peering down into the casket, Vladimir saw the face of Stalin. So it was true. Stalin had just been mortal after all, Vladimir was shaken. Ever since he could remember, Stalin had been praised by everyone around him. The leader had been at the height of his popularity after the defeat of Nazi Germany and had become the trusted face of Soviet communism and patriotism. At school, Vladimir was taught that Stalin was a genius in every discipline the strong and dependable leader the country needed as it rebuilt itself. Everyone was expected to join Stalin's Communist Party. Everyone must remain loyal to the Soviet Union. And everyone must stay away from dangerously Western ideas. Vladimir's parents towed Stalin's line without argument. They were pro-Soviet journalists, and taught their son to worship their great, omnipotent leader above all else. Vladimir was a bright boy and learned to read at an early age. He especially enjoyed the satirical cartoons in the newspapers his parents brought home. They were often mocking the bumbling Western caricatures of Uncle Sam and John Bull, who were forever losing money from their pockets or getting into fights. 
Growing up, Vladimir had never questioned the world around him. Even as he and his grandmother shivered in the long lines to buy precious paraffin, even as the people around him scrounged for food, surrounded by pro-Soviet feeling, he simply accepted things for what they were. But now, aged 11, peering down into Red Square, he felt that he had been lied to. It was a day that he would remember forever. In the following months, Vladimir felt increasingly disconnected from his friends and family. For the first time, he noticed how controlling the adults around him were. It felt like Soviet children were not supposed to be playful or independent. They were just supposed to be obedient. Loyalty to the country was all that mattered. And this was demanded from a very young age. There wasn't much room for fun. As Vladimir entered his teenage years, his feelings of disconnection turned to frustration. He began to see the plight of the people around him, struggling to feed their families while the leaders of the Soviet Union drove through the streets in fancy cars and ate like kings at chic restaurants. It wasn't fair, but no one around him seemed to want to talk about it. By the time he was 15, Vladimir had had enough of constant obedience. He and some friends at school decided to start testing the boundaries around them. He had always been a gifted student and a talented writer like his parents. So he put his skills to good use, putting together a small-scale parody magazine with his friends. At first, it was simply a comic of short articles and cartoons detailing funny moments of school life gently making fun of some of the teachers. But over the next two years, Bukowski became bolder. The magazine began to subtly reflect his feelings about the wider society around him and the Soviet Union. He passed the magazines around to his classmates. And when Vladimir was 17, his teachers discovered the magazine. He was in big trouble. As the ringleader, Vladimir bore the brunt of the punishment. He had expected to be sent to the principal's office, but soon realized that his wrongdoing was being dealt with much higher up, beyond the school grounds. He was sent to the headquarters of the city committee in Moscow, a little like the city mayor's office today. There, in the sparse, dimly lit room in the bowels of City Hall, he found himself surrounded by officious adults who interrogated him about the magazine. While some teenagers would have wilted under the pressure of powerful Soviet authorities, Vladimir found himself bolstered by his beliefs. He spoke about the injustice of serfdom and the lies of the Soviet leaders. Shocked, the chiefs came down hard. They expelled Vladimir from his school and told him they would block his entrance to further education. If he carried on talking like that, they said, they would make life even more difficult for him in the future. When he told his parents what had happened, they were mortified. Vladimir had shamed his family and perhaps even ruined his future. But deep down, Vladimir didn't regret what he had done. When he had talked back to the chiefs, he had felt a strength inside him he had never felt before. He had a feeling he could make a real difference to the world. He knew that in order to be taken seriously, he would have to find a way to get to university, though. And so, soon after his expulsion, Vladimir enrolled into community evening classes. Over the next year, he worked hard to get the qualifications he needed to apply to study biology at Moscow University. It wasn't easy. The university was oversubscribed, and there were 16 applicants for every place. But Vladimir was a high achiever. And in 1961, to his delight and his parents' relief, he was offered a place. College was everything Vladimir had hoped it would be. While he tried to stay focused on his studies, he quickly bonded with kindred spirits who shared his suspicion of the state. They would talk together late into the night 
And over time, Vladimir's understanding of politics and philosophy broadened under their influence. As young people, Vladimir and his friends were expected to join the Komsomol, the Communist Youth League, which aimed to mold a generation of ideal young communists, people who lived correctly and who shunned smoking, drinking, and religion. But Vladimir believed that the Komsomol were out of touch with the minds of Soviet youth. In defiance, Vladimir and his companions smoked, drank, swore, and listened to the rock and roll music now becoming available on the black market. But it was a dangerous time to show disobedience. At this point in 1961, the Soviet Union had been under the leadership of Stalin's successor, Nikita Khrushchev, for eight years. And Khrushchev had brought with him a chilling new concept. He was pushing the idea that anti-Soviet consciousness wasn't just disloyal, but that it was irrational, a disease of the mind, which meant that speaking your mind was more risky than ever before. 19-year-old Vladimir wasn't scared, though. His run-in with the authorities at school had built muscle. And so, while Vladimir dutifully attended classes by day, at night, he quietly railed against the state. One of the best ways to do this was to hold poetry readings. These events provided a safe space for people to gather discreetly and critique Soviet leadership. But the events weren't discreet for long. Word spread, and hundreds of people began turning up to the readings. There they were able to express themselves and share fresh ideas and information. But the crowds did not go unnoticed. One night, to Vladimir's horror, KGB officers turned up. They strode into the hall, bold as brass, and tried to break up the gathering. When the students tried to protest, they beat them. It became more and more dangerous for people to attend future events. But this did not put them off. In fact, news of the fights created publicity that attracted more angry activists. Over time, the crowds grew so large that KGB agents had to use snowplows to disperse them. Eventually, Vladimir was identified as one of the organizers and was once again brought before the authorities and interrogated about this subversion. He was told he didn't conform to the ethos of a Soviet student and would not be allowed to take his exams. Vladimir's life as a student was over, but he didn't care. College had already done its job. He had met like-minded activists and was learning all he could from them. He wouldn't be going back to his classes, but despite the KGB's warnings, he continued putting on the poetry events. He wanted as many young people as possible to know that together they had the power to change things in the Soviet Union. But he also knew that every day he left his house, he was taking a risk. He was being watched. And it wouldn't be long before he paid the price for disloyalty. One night, shortly after he was expelled from university, Vladimir was walking home from a poetry reading when he heard the screech of tires nearby. Before he could react, a car skidded to a halt next to him, and he was bundled into the back seat by a gang of men. After a few minutes of frantic driving, they arrived at a courtyard, and he was led down into a dark, empty basement. He had assumed he was being taken to the KGB for interrogation. But this did not look like an official premises. For one thing, he was the only person there. The men surrounded him, and suddenly, Vladimir felt a heavy blow to his chest, followed by a full-force punch to the face, and another, and another. The beating lasted several hours, but throughout it all, Vladimir tried to stay on his feet, as he knew that if he hit the ground, the beating would become a stamping that he doubted he would survive. When he was finally dumped into the street in the early hours, he was given a stark warning. 
Next time, he wouldn't be leaving the basement alive. At 19 years old, he was already a dissident and very much on the radar of the ruthless KGB. Back home, bruised and battered, Vladimir had a decision to make. Would he do as he was told and stop the poetry events, leaving his activism behind? Or would he continue, knowing that it could cost him his life? Vladimir knew that he would never be happy living a lie, swallowing the Soviet agenda. He wasted no time in arranging the next poetry event. And his punishment was swift. On October 6, 1961, he and more than 20 of his fellow organizers were arrested. Their alleged crime? Plotting to assassinate the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. The group denied this vehemently. They admitted that there had been a discussion amongst them about political violence and how far it was justified. But they had concluded that assassination would never work. It would only invite further repression from the state. It was too late, though. That discussion was all the KGB needed to justify arranging their trial. The only comfort was that the group were allowed to go free while they waited for the trial dates to be announced. Vladimir knew that the authorities would never find in his favor. Whatever their evidence or lack of evidence, he would be found guilty and imprisoned for a lengthy sentence. While he had felt brave before, the reality of being imprisoned struck fear into Vladimir's heart. He hated waiting for them to pounce. He was desperate to find a way to escape the inevitable and hatched a plan to skip town while the trial started without him. It wasn't easy. He had to dodge KGB officers all the way to the train station. He managed to shake them off in the crowd and slipped onto the next train. He then traveled over 2,000 miles east into freezing Siberia. He was finally safe. But as he rode train after train, word spread to Vladimir of his parents back home. They were bearing the brunt of his wrongdoing. They were mortified and ashamed, and his escape was only making him look cowardly. With a heavy heart, he decided to turn back and accept his fate along with his fellow dissidents. Soon after he arrived back in Moscow, he was arrested and taken to a cell in the infamous Lubyanka prison. It was well known as the place where the KGB interrogated and tortured dissidents they identified as enemies of the state. There, in his cold, solitary cell, he listened to the cries of the other prisoners echoing around the prison walls. He prepared himself for the violent punishment that would surely be coming his way. He was brought barely edible scraps of food and had little access to sunlight or fresh air. Once again, his bravery began to flicker as he awaited the beatings. He flinched at every sound. Hours passed, and the guards left Vladimir untouched. It was the same the next day, and the next, until at last his cell door was opened. He braced himself for an attack, but instead the guard told him to get up and led him out of the prison to a waiting car. He was told he was going to be examined at the Serbsky Institute of Forensic Psychiatry. At the institute, he was led through a maze of identical brightly lit corridors until he reached a plain box of a room. Inside, a doctor was waiting for him with a long list of questions. Why was he in conflict with society? He was asked. Why had he persisted in going to poetry readings when he knew it was forbidden? Why would he deliberately jeopardize his mother's peace of mind in this way? The questions went on and on. And while Vladimir tried to answer each one carefully, it felt like the doctor was trying to deliberately confuse him. Eventually, it was over, and Vladimir was taken back to his cell. 
The next day, he was told that, following his examination, he had been pronounced unfit to stand trial. He was suffering from the anti-Soviet disease of the mind that Nikita Khrushchev, the leader of the Soviet Union, had spoken about. He would not be kept in his cell. Instead, he would be taken to a psychiatric hospital for further treatment. Vladimir felt an initial burst of relief. He would not be beaten, and surely anything would be better than being left to rot in the notorious Lubyanka prison. But that sense of relief did not last long. Vladimir was transferred to the special mental hospital in Leningrad and knew instantly that his circumstances had taken a serious turn for the worse. He had been diagnosed with what the doctors called symptomless schizophrenia and was prescribed powerful psychotropic drugs. His possessions were taken from him, and along with the other new inmates, his head, armpits, and crotch were shaved, with the same pair of clippers, by aggressive orderlies. He later learned that these orderlies were, in fact, convicted criminals who had been sent to the hospital to work as part of their sentences. The hospital had once been an ordinary prison, and the cells were cold and dank, with no toilet. Prisoners had to use a communal latrine at the end of the corridor. Vladimir found out that his Ukrainian cellmate, who would just sit smiling happily at everything around him, had murdered his own children before cutting off his own ears and eating them. Nothing could be left loose in the cell. If a chessboard was set up, the cellmate would swallow all the pieces. Occasionally, the Ukrainian would yell out independence slogans and would be soundly beaten by the orderlies who would rush into the cell. Vladimir tried to intervene, but was beaten as well for his trouble, until he was transferred to a new cell, shared with two other murderers. One had killed his mother and was prone to sudden fits of hysterical laughter. The other had killed his wife and would eagerly torment Vladimir with stories about why he thought she had deserved it. But there were other inmates who did not seem to have violent pasts. Vladimir even made friends with a few of them, although they couldn't talk openly without being overheard by the orderlies. Over time, Vladimir began to understand the chilling truth. He might not be the only dissident who had been placed into the psychiatric hospital. He and God knows how many others had been packed away to keep them under Soviet control for as long as the state deemed necessary. The goal seemed to be to either keep them there forever or to break them and send them out into the world again as traumatized but obedient men. Vladimir saw how many of the patients around him were sedated with injections to keep them quiet. Complaints were not tolerated. They were just seen as further proof of your insanity. And there were worse punishments. One was called the roll-up. The prisoner would be rolled up in a wet strip of canvas, which would shrink around his body as it dried out, causing him to pass out with the agony. He would then be woken, and the terrifying procedure would be repeated. Weeks and months passed. Vladimir began to fear that the line between sanity and insanity was becoming blurred in his mind. His only solace was reading, and he ravenously devoured books in English, to the point where he began to think in his new language. One day, when his mother came to visit him, he realized he was translating his replies to her questions from English to Russian in his head before answering them. This realization terrified him. When had he lost track of who he was? Determined to stay sane, he found a way to avoid taking the pills the orderlies gave him. It wasn't easy. They would check to make sure he'd taken them properly, so he had to swallow them first and regurgitate them later. But over time, his brain started to feel less fuzzy. He learned how to protect his mind by detaching from everything around him. 
and taught himself to stop dreaming of the day he would be released from this living hell. A year passed, and then another. All the while, Vladimir tried to find a way out of the hospital. He yearned for freedom. He learned that sometimes an inmate's status would be reviewed, and the staff would decide whether they were ready to be released back into society. He became obedient and tried to show the staff that he had changed. Over time, he seemed to convince them. But before they would let him go, the staff set a series of psychological traps to test him. They would throw insults at him, bully him, torment him. He knew that if he reacted with anger, it would be used as proof that he had not yet learned enough humility to be a free and productive citizen once again. And so, He swallowed his pride and played the part of a changed man. Finally, in February 1965, 23-year-old Vladimir was released to the care of his mother after two years of incarceration. At first, he struggled to adapt. After spending so much time within the confines of his own mind, conversations with old friends or acquaintances felt awkward and uncomfortable. He drank heavily to ease the emotional pain of disconnection. But slowly, day by day, he began to acclimate to the real world once more. He reveled in simple pleasures, like the first rays of the morning sun or the fresh scent of the countryside. But these joys weren't enough to keep him out of trouble. All around him, people were still suffering under the Soviet system. And Vladimir, to the dismay of his mother, couldn't help becoming active again in the protest movement. He soon began circulating pamphlets, calling for the release of two other prominent dissidents. And so, despite all his effort to be let out of the psychiatric hospital, nine months after his release, he was arrested again and sent back there. This time, mercifully, for only six months. On his release, Vladimir heard some troubling news. In 1966, four fellow dissidents named Alexander Ginsburg, Yuri Galanskov, Alexei Dubrovolsky, and Vera Lashkova had been arrested for their involvement in publishing anti-Soviet poetry and books. Now, in January 1967, they were facing sentences of years of hard labor in prison camps. Vladimir saw this as an unusually harsh punishment, and he was enraged. He began to organize protests against the sentencing, and, to no one's surprise, was soon arrested once again, along with three co-conspirators. This time, though, he argued his case more forcefully. The Constitution of the USSR guaranteed the right of every Soviet citizen to demonstrate, he said. So wasn't it true that the authorities just forbade all the things that they didn't like? Was it legal to hold demonstrations, or wasn't it? The authorities asked him if he admitted his guilt. How could he answer that, he replied if he didn't understand the charges. It was forbidden to campaign for the release of those imprisoned by the KGB, they said. And it was forbidden to demand a review of the law. At this point, the KGB had had enough. They found all the organizers guilty of illegal campaigning. But while the others got away with suspended sentences, Vladimir faced much worse. He would not be sent back to the psychiatric hospital, though. Instead, he would be facing the very sentence he had protested against for his four fellow dissidents. He had to serve three long years in the Gulag, a notorious labor camp 300 miles south of Moscow. The labor camp was, according to the authorities, full of thieves and hoodlums. But when he arrived... Vladimir found that only a few were hardened criminals. Many were citizens like himself, people who had got on the wrong side of the KGB. 
The conditions were far worse than at the psychiatric hospital. They worked long hours building furniture in the freezing cold. Before returning to their oppressive and cramped rooms, bunk beds pushed up against bunk beds, riddled with lice, with no space to even turn over in your sleep. And all around him were signs meant to inspire hard work and obedience to the rules. Your family is waiting for you, and back to liberty with a clear conscience. Days, weeks, and months passed slowly. Winters were especially hard in the workshops, and Vladimir's frozen fingers struggled to hold on to his tools. The prisoners were forced to work in a humiliating sea of mud. Some would even inject fish fat into their veins to keep warm. Disease and drunkenness were everywhere, and the only way to get hold of any decent food was to bribe the administrators. Vladimir recognized the irony. This was a prison camp that encouraged illegal behavior. In protest, Vladimir went on a hunger strike and was punished with solitary confinement. He wrote complaint after complaint about the conditions and began to fear he would eventually face the firing squad. But after three long, miserable years, he was released again in 1970. One of the first things he did when he got out was visit his elderly mother, who was, by then, living in a residential home for Communist Party members. It was a crisp, snowy day. Inside, his mother was frail. The years of worry had taken their toll on her. She was shocked at how broken, bruised, and thin her son looked. She told him that if he didn't want to go back to prison, he would need to stop his ridiculous fight. The authorities would never stop trying to make his life in the Soviet Union impossible. He was now nearly 30 years old and had never really lived. His adult life had just been a series of incarcerations. But Vladimir knew he could never stop. Outside the residential home, he carefully made a gleaming white skull out of the snow and ice and left it balanced in the branches of a tree, where he knew the convalescing old Communist Party members would see it as they took their walks in the woods. As he recuperated and settled back into life in Moscow, Vladimir started to plan his next act of protest. He heard about more and more fellow activists who were being labeled unfit to plead, just as he had been. They were being given huge doses of antipsychotic medicine that made them woozy and confused. It was becoming a mass control tactic. He was filled with anger. He wanted the world to know just how badly the Soviet Union treated its critics. It was time to expose the scale of the suppression. He began to diligently write up his experiences in the psychiatric hospital and the gulag. He reached out to other activists, made reports of their experiences, and collected taped testimonials. He even dug into the backgrounds of some of the psychiatrists who were pushing this treatment and, to his horror, found that they were well-respected even in the West. Some had even been invited to give talks at scholarly conferences. His end goal was to put together a comprehensive document that showed the scale of the problem and pass it on to the Western media. He knew that if he succeeded, the Soviet state would not be happy. Their reputation in the West was already shaky, to say the least. If news of their psychiatric mistreatment got out, all respect would disappear. This made Vladimir's mission all the more risky. The authorities would do anything to stop the information getting out, and would lock him up again in a heartbeat, or worse. He had to find a way to smuggle his report to the West before he got caught again. By May 1970, just a few months after his release from the Gulag, he had prepared his account and was ready to talk. First, he discreetly reached out to Holger Jensen, an Associated Press journalist stationed in Moscow, and, 
Jensen looked through the exhaustive collection of testimonies and leapt at the chance to interview Vladimir. The journalist then introduced him to CBS correspondent Bill Cole, who was also living in Moscow. Bill knew how sensitive this story was and wanted to protect Vladimir as much as possible. He told Vladimir that he wanted to film an interview with him for a news feature, but he understood that they had to be careful about it. The KGB were watching Vladimir and were already suspicious of Bill. His solution was to arrange a meeting with Vladimir in the woods on the outskirts of Moscow, where they wouldn't be watched. As Vladimir answered Bill's questions, he found himself reliving the trauma he had been through. But it would all be worth it, he told himself, if the world knew the truth. Vladimir's story was backed up by interviews with two other dissidents. The first was André Amalric, a dissident writer who had been thrown into a labor camp after he wrote a provocative essay titled Will the Soviet Union Survive Until 1984? The second was Pyotr Yakir, a Soviet historian who had spent his teenage years in the Gulag after his father had been searched and killed by police. Together, their stories painted a frightening picture of Soviet brutality. Bill carefully posted the films back to the States, along with Vladimir's written account. Vladimir also gave Bill a letter, an appeal to the World Psychiatric Congress. If they knew how psychiatry and violence were being used, perhaps they could intervene somehow. Vladimir was hopeful, but he knew that things wouldn't change overnight. Besides, the mail service was slow back then. It would be months before the tapes and reports would reach their destination. In the meantime, Holger Jensen's Associated Press piece came out in the States. Word was sent back to the Soviet Union, and Vladimir was immediately arrested and charged with slander. In the prosecutor's office, Vladimir argued that the article had not been defamatory because he had proof that everything he'd said had been true. But the prosecutor had no interest in looking at his evidence. Soon afterwards, Jensen was targeted, too. He was living in a special housing development for foreign press in Moscow, with guards stationed outside each property. But one day, he watched one of the guards walk up to his car and slash his tires. Soon after, he was falsely accused of dangerous driving and even putting someone into the hospital. Eventually, the White House got worried. He was told to stop covering any stories. They didn't want their relationship with the Soviet Union to get any worse. When the CBS film finally came out, Bill Cole was expelled from the Soviet Union, and Vladimir was sent back to the Serbsky Institute. There, he was labeled, once again, unfit to plead. This came as no surprise to Vladimir. But it was depressing to be locked up in the hospital while, in the West, things were finally starting to move. After Bill's film and Holger's article were made public, Western psychiatrists started to take notice, appalled at what was happening in the Soviet Union. Vladimir's report was presented at a conference in Paris. Bill's news feature was shown in six different countries. And the Times newspaper in London published his appeal letter to Western psychiatrists. Eventually, in November 1971, the World Federation for Mental Health pushed for an investigation into the charges Vladimir had been making. Under pressure from the watching world, the Soviet Union agreed to hold a trial for Vladimir three months later, in January 1972. But the trial did not go as Vladimir would have liked. It was held in a distant suburb of Moscow. The building was cordoned off to keep Vladimir's friends and supporters out of the courtroom. Inside, the rows of seats were filled with KGB officers and party members. The charges held against him were vague, 
while Jensen's Associated Press article was presented and Bill Cole's film played on a projector, no one in the room understood English, and Vladimir was asked few questions. The officials were keen to keep away from discussing his allegations about the psychiatric hospitals and Gulag, but Vladimir was determined to make them hear the truth. He spoke over them loudly, outlining the disgusting conditions he had encountered. When they tried to interrupt him, he continued on, even louder than before. They called none of his witnesses. Eventually, Vladimir was sentenced to 12 years in prison. The West couldn't help him. He had been accused of a crime, tried, and found guilty. No one could argue with that. In prison, he endured once more. He was almost used to the hunger, the cold, and the discomfort by now. Over the next four years, he occupied his mind with daily study and by pushing back against the hellish conditions. The only silver lining of his time in jail was a friendship he developed with a fellow inmate. Semyon Gluzman was a Ukrainian psychiatrist and human rights activist who had been jailed when he, like Vladimir, had openly opposed psychiatric abuse. Whenever the pair was left unobserved, they got together and worked on a secret project. They were slowly writing a short manual for dissidents, with advice about how to behave during interrogation to avoid being diagnosed as mentally ill. This activity kept Vladimir's spirits up, along with the occasional visits he was allowed from friends. One day, though, a friend came with some worrying news from the outside world. They said there was a change in the regime's policy. Now, dissidents were being expelled or deported instead of being sent to a psychiatric hospital. This news shook Vladimir. Despite all of the heartache his homeland had brought him, he did not like the idea of leaving. I am Russian, he thought. Where else would I call home? By 1975, Vladimir was no longer allowed visits from friends or family. His mother had always written to him regularly, but her letters stopped reaching him. In the following months, his morale began to dip lower, and his health began to suffer. He began to fear he would die in prison. In December 1976, four years after he had been imprisoned, Vladimir was at his lowest ebb, when something extraordinary happened. He was puzzled one night when the guards arrived at his cell with a package for him. Inside was a smart suit jacket and pants. But when he asked what they were for, the guards gave him no explanation. That night, he couldn't sleep. He smoked cigarette after cigarette. What was coming next? Another trial? More interrogation? One thing was for sure. This thin suit would be no help in keeping him warm in the chilly Soviet winter. Early the next morning, the guards came to his bedside and told him to rise and get ready to leave. He asked them if he could at least take an overcoat. To his surprise, they agreed, and then handcuffed his hands behind his back. Vladimir was then bundled into a minibus. Dawn was just breaking, and he couldn't yet see where he was going. Then he heard the roar of planes taking off close by. He was at an airport. The guards told him that he would now be leaving the country, accompanied by his mother, sister, and nephew. To his surprise, he felt nothing. No joy, no excitement. All he could experience was exhaustion. As the pilot made his preparations for takeoff, he looked hard in the eyes of the chief KGB officer standing guard. Why was he still in handcuffs? Vladimir asked. The officer looked away and mumbled that Vladimir was still a prisoner for as long as he was in Soviet territory, and that, by the way, the handcuffs on his wrists were made in America. 
By the time the plane landed in Zurich, Switzerland, Vladimir had finally learned the unusual circumstances around his departure. It seemed that for the last two years, a plan had been unfolding. It had all started with Vladimir's mother. After she'd been banned from visiting him in jail, she'd heard through the grapevine that he was ill and that he wasn't receiving her letters. She hated the idea that he might waste away alone, unloved in prison, and had started desperately reaching out to anyone who might be able to help. She wrote to journalists, human rights committees, and even the U.S. government. Eventually, her cries for help were heard, and a man called Andrei Sakharov, the leader of a Soviet human rights movement, came up with a plan. With the help of the U.S. government, he persuaded the Soviet Union to exchange Vladimir for another political prisoner, a Chilean communist leader called Luis Corvalan Lepe. The scheme had been so politically fraught and fragile that the organizers had to keep it a secret from Vladimir and even from his mother until the very day of the exchange. But miraculously, everything had gone to plan. And on the same day that Vladimir left Moscow, Luis Corvalan was flown from Chile to Switzerland before taking another plane to his new home in the Soviet Union. There, the Chilean was welcomed as a hero. For Vladimir, his first days of freedom were quieter. He was still ill after years of cold and malnutrition and spent a few months in Switzerland recuperating before deciding on his next steps. He was, perhaps understandably, in a state of shock. Since the age of 19, his life had been pockmarked by long periods of incarceration. And now, finally, at 34 years old, his life as a free man could properly begin. It was a concept he'd have to get used to. Something he could not get used to, though, was the homesickness. He missed his home country terribly and felt guilty for leaving his fellow dissidents behind. He only hoped that from outside the country, he'd be able to make changes he hadn't been able to from within. And at first, things seemed promising. In March 1977, just four months after his release, Vladimir was invited to fly to the States and visit the White House. There he met U.S. President Jimmy Carter in a gesture of solidarity with dissidents that infuriated Soviet leaders. Soon afterwards, the World Psychiatric Association officially condemned Soviet practices at its annual Congress. For Vladimir, it felt like the rest of the world was joining together to try and put a stop to the abuse he had suffered. While his mother, sister, and nephew settled in Switzerland, Vladimir decided to move to the UK, a country that he had long admired, and became an informal advisor to British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher on Soviet matters. He chose to live in the city of Cambridge so he could return to university and finish the degree in biology he had started in Moscow so many years before. While studying, he fell in love with the picturesque city around him and made it his permanent home. But not everything was easy. Vladimir was still affected by the abuse he had experienced while incarcerated. And despite his best efforts, he was frustrated at how slowly things were changing back in the Soviet Union. He learned that in 1978, the year after he'd left the Soviet Union, Around 80 new psychiatric hospitals had been built. At that point, 4.5 million Soviet citizens were still registered as psychiatric patients, almost 2% of the population. Vladimir did not give up, though. He spent the next decade protesting, talking and writing about the abuses of the Soviet Union. Until, finally, in 1988 the Soviet Union began to crumble. And as it did, there was a mass removal of citizens' names from the psychiatric registry. 
Millions of people who had been called insane for years were finally free of the label, although many will never be free of the emotional scars they were left with. To this day, it's impossible to know the true extent of the abuse. Many names, numbers, and registers spanning decades are still classified. As for Vladimir, he continued to keep his eye on the politics of his home nation and spent the rest of his life campaigning against communism in other countries. He went on to co-found a movement called Resistance International, write several books on the subject, and tell his story all over the world. Thanks to his tenacity and fearlessness, people were made aware of the inhumane psychiatric practices of the Soviet Union, and many credit him with helping bring these abuses to an end. His bravery was acknowledged in 2002 when he received the Truman Reagan Medal of Freedom from the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. He remained in the UK until his death, aged 76, in 2019. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Vladimir Bukovsky, amongst the many sources we used, we found his book To Build a Castle extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Alistair Hager. Script edited by Alice Homewood. Produced by Alice Homewood. Mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez. <laughs>